If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Romans chapter 12 as we continue our study going through Romans. We'll probably take a break after this week and uh, uh, talk about the advent of Christ beginning next Sunday. But uh, we're in verses 6 through 8 of Romans chapter 12 this morning. And this passage deals with spiritual gifts. And we've been in verses 1 through 8 for a few weeks now. And I I told you last week that I wanted to set aside this morning to look specifically at verses 6 through 8 because they dealt with spiritual gifts. Now, when I talk about spiritual gifts, when you hear that word, there's probably a variety of different reactions to that word. Some people might react to that word with some confidence. Hey, I know what my spiritual gift is. I've heard this kind of stuff before, and, and I know how God has spiritually gifted me, and, and perhaps even I'm using it in some way in the body of Christ. With, for others, it might be a source of curiosity, because maybe you don't know what your spiritual gift is, or maybe you've, you don't know a whole lot about spiritual gifts in general. You've never heard this taught before. But for others, that might be a sense of discouragement, that maybe you're not really satisfied with the gift God has given. You, you, you know what you know, the spiritual gift said, and, and, and you're not really happy with that, and you wish you had somebody else's gift. And so maybe there's a sense of discouragement. Maybe you feel like you, know, you were left out when God handed out the spiritual gifts, and you kind of were at the end of that line. There are maybe others that this is a, the spiritual gifts conversation is one where you might struggle with a sense of pride and, and too much of a being centered on self uh, because you're kind of excited about the fact that God has given you this gift and this is a discussion that's about me and how God has gifted me and it's all about me and, you know, we like talking about ourselves and our giftedness. But for others in here, this might, this might elicit a sense of fear or maybe anxiousness or weariness, not weariness, but weariness. Because there's been so much disagreement and debate about spiritual gifts and what kind of spiritual gifts are active today and how should you use them, when should you use them, where should you use them, all of that. And so maybe there's a sense of fear. Well, Paul lays out in verses 6 through 8 here what I, what I believe is a very concise theology on spiritual gifts. And, and I think it's noteworthy, and we'll talk about this, that this comes within the context of his discussion about unity within the body of Christ. And so um, as we read through this, as we talk through this, understand that that is the context in which Paul delivers this. So I want to read these verses, but I want to read them in context. So um, back up to verse 1 of chapter 12. We're going to read through verses, uh, down through verse 8. The word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, 
if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Now we thank you for this book that we hold in our hands. Father, we are so grateful um, beyond words for your protecting this throughout the ages, preserving this book throughout the ages such that we can know with certainty that what we hold in our hands is the very breath of God. And so as the breath of God, we ask, Father, that you would speak to us from it this morning. In my meager attempts to explain the text, Father, may your spirit go much further and give us a true understanding. And then beyond the understanding, Lord, help us to apply it to our lives so that we look a little bit more like your son Jesus, having spent time with you in your word this morning. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning, verses uh, 6 through 8, the context of this Um, you'll recall, is that Paul has made the transition from the doctrinal portion of the letter to the practical portion of the letter, letter, generally speaking. And and the motivation or the, the reason for doing the application is because of the doctrinal foundation that he's laid in the first 11 chapters. As he said there in verse 1, in view of or because of God's mercies. So because of the glory of God, because of the grace of God displayed most beautifully in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ought to live transformed lives, not lives that are conformed to the pattern or standards of this world, but lives that are transformed from the inside out. And in chapter 12, he's talking about living this transformed life primarily from the perspective of relating to other people. And in the the first half of chapter 12, He's speaking about living a transformed life, not conformed to the patterns of the world, but transformed specifically in relation to how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. Now, we've already learned in verse 3 that this begins with us not thinking too highly of ourselves, that, that, that we're not to be prideful or arrogant, but we're to think of ourselves with sober judgment, he said. And that, in turn, led Paul to remind us, as we saw last week, that we, that we are just one member in the unity that is the body of Christ. He told us last week that our primary identity is not that of an individual, but our primary identity is as a body part or a member of the body of Christ, the church. And, and consequently, we have a responsibility for one another in the body of Christ. But he also told us last week and reminded us that our unity in the body of Christ is preserved when we recognize our diversity, that we are different, that we have different functions in the body of Christ. And the three verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 6 through 8, Paul notes that our different functions are a consequence of God having given us different gifts. So Paul calls these spiritual gifts. And and in verses 6 through 8, Paul lays out what I believe is a four-part or four-point theology on spiritual gifts. Number one, that 
all believers have a gift. Number two, that those are different gifts. Number three, that we're given them to use them. And then fourthly, that we're to use them to build up the body of Christ. So that's the outline that we're going to be working with this morning that follows verses 6 through 8. Now we're going to cover some other stuff this morning. We're going to hit some of the more controversial issues and we're just going to have time to touch on them. Things like whether or not the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts are still for today or not. What does Paul say? What does, this, what does the word say? We're also going to try to provide some practical advice for how we can discover what our specific gifting is from God. But I want to caution you that those issues are secondary at best. Though in most dealings with spiritual gifts, in most, most teachings, most, most books on spiritual gifts, those are the issues that, that get the lion's share of attention. I would say, I would suggest that what is by far more important is this four-part theology that Paul gives us of what spiritual gifts are and how they are to be utilized. Now, Romans 12, verses 6 through, six through 8, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, is just one of many uh, verses in Scripture where Paul deals with spiritual gifts. So I'm going to try to anchor the sermon in verses 6 through 8 of Romans 12, but we're going to look at a number of other passages, most notably 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in fact, if you've got your Bible, you might want to kind of put a finger in both places as we will be bouncing back and forth between the two. Now, before we get into the four-part theology that Paul gives us of spiritual gifts, we have to define the term, right? So what is a spiritual gift? Well, the word that is most often translated spiritual gift in our English translations is the Greek word charisma. Uh, that's the singular form of the noun, <clears throat> spiritual gift. <clears throat> the plural form is charismata, but it comes from the root word is charis. And charis is found um, over 150 times in the New Testament. And the vast majority of those times, over 130 of those times, that word is translated in the English Bible as grace. And so that's the common word in Scripture for grace is charis. So perhaps a helpful re-rendering of this word that is translated spiritual gift, because it refers, the root word is grace, perhaps a helpful re-rendering of this word might be a grace gift. Not, not because they're not spiritual, they are spiritual, and we'll see that in just a moment because they come from the Spirit, but that word in the Greek is not directly translated as spiritual, but rather a gift or a special impartation of or a, or a specific endowment of grace. Now in verse 6, Paul mentions these grace gifts, and he mentions them almost in passing in Romans 12, as if he assumes that the Romans that he's writing to already know a great deal about them. Well, let's assume that we don't know about them. Does the New Testament ever describe what they are? Tell us specifically what they are. <clears throat> Consider with me 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says here, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I, I do not want you to be uninformed. So the Apostle Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. And so 
he goes on to write about them a great deal in this first letter that he writes to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a few verses later, beginning in verse 4, says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, there's a lot in that, in, in just those three verses that we'll come back to later. But we can already see a definition of spiritual gifts beginning to come together. First of all, he tells us that they come from God. They don't originate from us. So these aren't natural abilities. They are, these are supernatural abilities. They, they are given to us by God. Secondly, they are an impartation of grace. So this, for, for this reason, it's given to us at conversion. It's a manifestation of the Spirit that's given to us at conversion. Thirdly, they help us to serve God. As we'll see, we're to use them in serving God. Fourthly, God empowers the use of them. So as we use them to serve God, we recognize that actually it's not us that's doing the work, but it is God who's doing the work through us. So God is empowering the use of them. And then lastly, of course, it is a manifestation of the Spirit. So the spiritual gifts are very God-focused. They're not man-focused. They're not believer-focused. They're God-focused. It comes from God. It is, it's a manifestation of the Spirit of God. It's to be used to serve God. And when we serve God by using them, it is actually God who's doing the work through us. So they're very God-focused. They're, they're all about God. They're not, they're not about the believer. They're about God. And so when we talk about spiritual gifts, they are meant to display the glory of of God, And that's very critical as we begin to talk about them. Any discussion of or study of or use of or questionnaire to help you discover what they might be, any focus on spiritual gifts that focuses on anything other than the glory of God misunderstands the biblical focus on spiritual gifts. They're meant to display the glory of God and specifically the glory of God in the body of Christ in the church. So what is this four-part theology from our text in Romans 12? First of all, every believer has a gift. Look at the first phrase of verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So who's the us here? Well, verse 6 is, a, is kind of a further explanation of verse 4. And in verse 4, Paul said, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. As we said last week, the we in verse 4 are the members of the body of Christ, which are believers in Jesus Christ. And so he's talking here about all believers in the church, all believers in the body of Christ. And he says we all have different functions and those dis different functions are a result of or a consequence of having been given different gifts. So all believers have a gift. Listen to some of these other verses from 1 Corinthians 12. First of all, from verse, <clears throat> excuse me, from verse 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each. Nobody's left out there. Verse 11 from that passage. 
All these, he's talking about all these gifts, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So it's given to each one. Uh, Peter jumps in here from his passage dealing with spiritual gifts. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So every believer has a spiritual gift. The point point here is that nobody is left out. Nobody's left out in this. Every believer in the church is important and critical in the mission of the church. And for that reason, because every believer in the church is critical to the mission of the church, God has given every believer in the church a gift or a combination of gifts in order for that church to fulfill the mission of the church. So that's good news. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ, as we talked about last week, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, not only has he forgiven you of your sins, not only has he given you his righteousness and by way of consequence, he has given you eternal life with him, but in addition to that, he has given to you a manifestation of the Spirit of God in the form of a spiritual gift or a combination of spiritual gifts. So that means that unbelievers don't have them. So if you're here this morning, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're trusting in yourself to make yourself right before God, or you're trusting in your church attendance to make yourself right before God, or, or, or anything other than Christ crucified, died, and buried, and risen again, then that means you don't have this spiritual gift. You might, have, you might be gifted. You might have some natural abilities that are tremendous, but they are not spiritual gifts. They are not grace gifts because those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus haven't experienced the grace of God. But what kind of gift did God give to you? That leads us to the second part of Paul's theology on spiritual gifts, and that is that all of our gifts are different. Now, when I say all our gifts are different, I don't mean that nobody else has the same gift that you do or nobody else has the same gifting that I do. Just saying simply that we, we're all different. We, we don't have the same giftings. There is a diversity of giftedness. Again, we see this in verse 6. He, sa- he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So they differ with a diversity of giftedness. We mentioned 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 earlier. Here Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul was speaking in that passage about the gift of singleness. So that's a spiritual gift, the the gift of being single, believe it or not. Um, And he says, I wish, you know, if it were up to me, then everybody would be given this gift. But that wasn't God's design. That's not how God designed it. Instead, he says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. But the best way, the absolute best way for us to see the diversity of giftings within the body of Christ is to notice the way that Paul describes the gifts in the passages of Scripture where he describes them. Here in Romans chapter 12, in the verses that we're looking at, as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he lists even more, Paul describes a great variety of spiritual gifts. But the way in which he talks about them, the way he describes them, 
he makes it abundantly clear that we're all gifted differently. Listen to verses 6 through 8 again of, of chapter 12 of Romans. He says, if prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. The, the key word there is if. In using the word if, he assumes that not everyone will have the gift of prophecy. But if you do, then you're to use it in proportion to your faith. We also see this in verse 7. If serve us, then in our serving. And then he says, the one who teaches, not the all, not all of you, but the one who teaches. Now, he's not saying that there's only one of you in the church in Rome that has the gift of teaching. But he's saying, listen, if you've got that gift, if that's what you have, then you are to exercise that in your teaching. He also does this four additional times in verse 8. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Cheerfulness. So he's making it plain here that we're all gifted differently. Now there are a handful of implications from the truth that we're all gifted differently. Uh, the first, maybe these are more applications than implications, but the first is that we ought to be content with the gift or gifts that God has given to us. We're to be content with that. Why? Because we're not the ones who choose them. We don't, we don't choose our own gifts. God does the choosing. God is the one who sovereignly decided who would get what gifts. Paul drives this point home really hard in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to a few of these verses. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So we get the picture here of God apportioning the gifts, handing out the gifts according to whose will, according to his own will, he says. A few verses later in verse 18, it says, but, God, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So he's apportioning the gifts. He's arranging the members Verse 24, but God has so composed the body, he's composing the body with these different giftings. And in verse 28, he says, and God has appointed in the, in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so forth. So God is the one who decided what gift you would have. Whatever gift you have, it wasn't yours by choice, it wasn't yours by accident, it was yours by the sovereign will of God. And for that reason, we ought to be content with that. We ought to be content with the gift that God has given to us. When we accept the spiritual gift that we have as the perfect gift for us, then we're demonstrating trust in the sovereignty and graciousness of our God. So we're to be content with this. But conversely, on the flip side, we're to not be jealous or envious of someone else's gift or gifting. When we're jealous of someone else's gifting, then this is just communicating to God that we think he did a lousy job of handing them out. When I'm envious of someone else's gifting, then that's apparently that essentially what I'm saying to God is, God, when you handed out the gifts, perhaps you didn't have all the right information about what gift would be best for me. When we're envious of someone else's gifting, or maybe not envious, but just dissatisfied with the gift that he has given to us, 
then we're questioning either God's judgment or his character. We're, we're, we're either saying to him, God, you aren't wise enough to really know which gift would have been best for me, or we're saying, God, you're not kind enough to give me the gift that I really wanted. But a third application of the fact that God has given us different gifts is to recognize that no gift, and this is perhaps the most important, to recognize that no gift is more important or less important than any other. All gifts in the body of Christ are critical to the mission of the body of Christ. All gifts are mission critical. If you spend some time reading through the rest of of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul really drives this point home in that entire chapter. He'll, He'll go on to say the foot shouldn't think himself any less important than the hand. And that the ear shouldn't feel less important because it's not an eye. He'll tell us that the eye, try as it might, is not going to be able to hear. The eye was never designed to hear. It was designed to see. And so it shouldn't feel unimportant because it doesn't have the ability to hear. Conversely, he says that the eye also shouldn't get puffed up with pride because it has the ability to see and then say to the hand, I don't need you because I'm more important than you. He concludes that that portion of 1 Corinthians 12 with this in verses 22 through 25. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You know what that word means, right? You can't get by without it. The parts of the body that that, that appear, that seem in your human eyes to be weaker, they're actually indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so, so, listen to the sovereignty of God here. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In practical terms, what Paul is saying here is that, the, is that no gift is more important or less important or more mission critical or, or less mission critical than any other gift in the body of Christ. And we ought to treat the spiritual gifts in the church in that way, that they're all mission critical. So we've got all these, these different gifts. What are the spiritual gifts? I know that's what you came for, right? What are the spiritual gifts and, and which one do I have? Well, before we even go into that, this is difficult to figure out what are the spiritual gifts because scholars disagree on the number of them. In reading through Scripture, depending on how you count them, depending on how you categorize them into groups and say this one seems like this one and so it's really the same, there's, there, I mean, you can pull up a, a spiritual gifts on the Internet and you'll see all kinds of different lists with different numbers. Anywhere from 9 to 25, but you probably can find some that have a lot more than that on there. Add to that the fact that some scholars say that these lists of spiritual gifts that we have in the New Testament are not exhaustive or exclusive, but they're merely representative. And if that's the case, then you've got an unlimited number of additional gifts that you can add to the list. Now, while I agree that some of these lists are not exhaustive, then they are to be representative, the question still remains, which ones are we going to add to the list? And how do we really know if they're a spiritual gift or not? 
For example, musical ability. That's one that's debated. That could be a spiritual gift, but we don't know for sure. Certainly, there are unbelievers that are tremendously gifted musically, right? But for it to be a spiritual gift, it would, be a, it would need to be a manifestation of the Spirit of God, and it would need to be used to display the glory of God. So in this example, we can say, for example, that Elton John, he, though he is tremendously gifted musically, that that is not a spiritual gift. Because that gifting or that ability of his displays the glory of Elton John, not the glory of God. But a spirit, uh, Bob's gift in it musically or Meatloaf's gift or, or Ruth, Ruth Knudsen's gift musically, perhaps that is a spiritual gift because it is used to bring glory to God. But because we really don't know how to put any kind of boundary around that of what might be an additional spiritual gift or what might not be, we're going to limit our discussion this morning to the spiritual gifts that we see described and listed in Scripture. Now, what makes this listing even more difficult is this debate about whether or not all of the gifts that we even find listed in Scripture are still active or are still for the New Testament church today. Now, I would submit to you that this is a secondary debate about a tertiary issue at best. And I know that we've got folks in our church that land on both sides of this issue, and that's great, and that's beautiful, and that's wonderful. And if you've made up your mind on this stuff, believe me, my purpose in talking about this morning is not to change your mind on this. But if you've not heard about this, if you're curious about what this discussion is all about, you're the person that I'm speaking to this morning, okay? I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. The, the, the gifts, particularly in question in this discussion, are what are known as the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts. And I actually don't like that word for them. I think, I think miraculous is a misnomer because all of the gifts are miracles because they're a manifestation of the Spirit. But the sign gifts, most notably speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, healing, prophecy, things of that nature. Now some will say that the miraculous gifts are no longer active. And that they are no longer for the church. They're not possible for the church today. God didn't intend them for the church today. They will say that they ceased uh, sometime after the first century church was established, but certainly before the early fourth century when the New Testament canon was closed and we had the New Testament in its completion. Now, because they argue that these gifts have ceased, they are known as cessationists because they believe that they have ceased. Others will argue that all of the gifts that we find listed in Scripture, including the sign gifts, are still for today and are still active or at least possible to be active in some way, that they haven't ceased. So because they believe that they can continue, they are called continuationists. Now, within that group, I would suggest that there are at least two subgroups underneath continuationists. I'm giving very broad generalities here, okay, for the purpose of time, because this is a tertiary issue. Tertiary means third, by the way, not primary, not secondary, tertiary. So under continuationists, I would say there are two subgroups. One would be charismatics. We've all heard that word. What does it mean? Charismatics not only believe that gifts are still active, but seek to practice them in some way in the church. 
And there are lots of subgroups underneath that. You've got everything from Holiness Pentecostals to Reformed Baptist Charismatics, all kinds of flavors within that. I would say another subcategory under, under continuationist is this category that I would call open but cautious. Those who see no biblical reason for concluding that these sign gifts have ceased. And so for that reason, they're open to the possibility that they can still be practiced today. But they're also cautious because they quite honestly don't see them being practiced biblically today in the church. I would place myself in that latter category, open but cautious. Now, I've seen what some might call the gift of speaking in tongues practiced. But in 52 years, I can say with all honesty that I've never seen it practiced biblically. You go back and read 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 14. Paul gives some very clear boundaries about how the gift of speaking in tongues is to be practiced. And I've never seen it practiced biblically. So I can't say with any confidence that I've actually seen the gift practiced at all. Maybe it was, maybe it was just being practiced unbiblically. I don't know. And so I'm open I'm open, but I'm also very cautious, some might say even skeptical, of their practice. But in my opinion, and this is my opinion only, okay, take it for what it's worth, not much. But in my opinion, the cessationist argument, it begins with what we observe. And what we observe in the church is either a lack of, the, uh, of speaking in tongues or unbiblical speaking in tongues. And so they begin with... Uh, what they observe in the church, what they observe in our world, and then they go to strict scripture and try to find a rationale for why that is the case, why there isn't speaking in tongues. Whereas the continuationist, whatever flavor of continuationist you might be, the continuationist begins with scripture. And scripture nowhere says that any of the gifts have ceased. And so we begin with Scripture, and then we see what's happening in the world, and we seek to understand the world through the lens of Scripture instead of seeking to understand Scripture through the lens of the world. So I'm always going to be more comfortable with an argument that begins with Scripture. Let me try to explain it this way. If you were an alien, if you were an alien and you just, you just landed on earth out of nowhere, and you didn't know anything about the sign gifts, you didn't know anything about spiritual gifts, you didn't know anything about Christianity or the Bible or anything, somebody hands you a Bible, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, I believe you would be a firm continuationist because you wouldn't have observed anything else in the church today. It would only be when you look away from Scripture and you look at the church and its practices today that you would in any way consider rejecting your continuationist position. So, for that reason, I'm open but cautious. There you go. It's not worth much, but I promise you I would tell you that. Now, with all that being said, what are the spiritual gifts? We find them in three places in Scripture. First of all, our passage here in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, we find seven spiritual gifts in Romans 12. They are the gift of prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. The second place where we find them, again, obviously, is 1 Corinthians. Corinthians, it's a little less clear what the gifts are because some of the things that he mentions seem to be offices in the church. Some of them seem to be gifts. 
So, for example, the, the gift of apostle or, or the office of apostle is certainly listed as uh, elsewhere as an office in the New Testament church, but is it perhaps also listed by Paul as a gifting? I personally think it is, that there is an apostolic gifting. Not that somebody has the apostolic gifting is an apostle. There were only a limited number of them. But that there is an apostolic gifting that, that seeks to begin new works, begin new things, start fresh somewhere and begin a new work. And so the way I count things in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I find 13 spiritual gifts there. Two of them are repeated from the list in Romans chapter 12. And so we've got 11 new spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. And they are wisdom, uh, the utterance of knowledge or a word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, distinguishing between spirits, what some people might call discernment, speaking in tongues, interpreting the tongues, the apostolic gifting, the gift of helps, and the gift of administration. So there's 11 new ones there, and so that gives us a total of 18 now. The third passage, or really just the verse where we find uh, spiritual gifts, is Ephesians 4, verse 11. And again, we're confronted here with the issue of whether or not we're talking about offices in the church or giftings in the church. The, the, the problem is uh, most of what's listed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 is also on some of these other lists that are clearly spiritual gifts. And so they are... Um, if you count them all up, there are five in Ephesians 4, verse 11, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, and only two of those are new, the gift of evangelism and the gift of shepherding or pastoring. Um, elsewhere in Scripture, we find other, uh, potentially other spiritual gifts. Um, we mentioned perhaps in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Paul talks about the gift of, or Peter talks about the gift of hospitality. Um, uh, some, some scholars say that Jesus in the Gospels talks about the gift of martyrdom. Um, then there's the, the missionary gift, the gift of poverty. So given this list of gifts that we have in these three primary passages, which one do you have? Which ones do I have? How can I discover my spiritual gift? Let's talk about this for a moment. Well, the most common way is to take this. You're going to find these all over the internet. You can do a search for spiritual gift test, and you will find probably millions of them. Some of them are free. Some of them you have to pay for. Uh, but you answer a bunch of questions about what you like, what you're good at, what evidences you see of spiritual fruit. You add up all your scores. You tally them, and then it tells you here is what your spiritual gift is. Now, let me be honest with you. I'm not a big fan of spiritual gift tests. I, I think they have limited if any, usefulness. I'm, saying, uh, I'm not saying don't use one, but if you do, be very cautious about relying on the results. Whatever they say is your spiritual gift, it might be, but it might not be. But that's the most, most common way. A better way that I would suggest is to simply take these words that we find in Scripture and seek to understand what those words mean. Do a word study of those biblical words Use your concordance in your Bible. Use your Bible dictionary. Use the resources that are on in the library back here. Use a commentary, whatever you have to use to seek to understand what those words mean. And then simply ask yourself, does that sound like me? Does that sound like something that I have? But the very best way to discover your spiritual gift is to use it, is to put it into practice, 
to exercise it in the way in which God intended for you to use it. Which leads us to the third part of Paul's theology on spiritual gifts, and that is that gifts are meant to be used. They're meant to be used. Again, look at our passage from Romans 12, verse 6 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. The New American Standard says to exercise them accordingly. And then Paul gives us in the remaining two and a half verses, he gives us those seven examples of how to use them. See, he's not just listing for us the gifts in verses 7 and 8. He's telling us how to use them. It says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, now those ways in which Paul says we're to practice the spiritual gifts are not altogether insightful and new and different. He's simply saying, use them. These are not to be trophies on our Christianity shelf. They are to be put into practice. They are to be exercised. They are to be activated by our use of them. The point is to use them. I think it's uh, noteworthy uh, that nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to discover our spiritual gifts. We're never told to discover our spiritual gifts, though you will do an internet search and you will see millions of spiritual gift inventories and all this discussion about how you can discover your spiritual gift. Nowhere are we told to spend any time trying to discover what our spiritual gift is. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, but we're not told to discover our spiritual gift. But in every place, every major place where spiritual gifts are discussed in Scripture, in the New Testament, we're also told to use them. In all of those places, we're told to practice them, to use them, to activate them by putting them into practice. Now, one might rightly argue, well, how can I put them into practice if I don't even know what they are? And that's a, that's a good point. But I think that misses the heart of Paul's teaching. Think about it. When we're all caught up in trying to discover our spiritual gift, when we're all caught up in trying to examine self and see what I like and see what I enjoy and see what I'm good at, when we're all caught up in that, what is our focus? Self, right? But if we're all caught up in serving others and loving others, in preserving the unity of the body of Christ and caring for one another, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when we're all caught up in that, what is our focus? It's others. So that leads us to the fourth part of this four-part theology on spiritual gifts that Paul gives us, and that is that the gifts are for building up the body of Christ, the church. I think it's incredibly instructive and noteworthy that the two main passages in the New Testament that speak the most about spiritual gifts also talk a great deal. In fact, it's the primary context of those passages where he talks about unity within the one body of Christ. And then he subsequently teaches about spiritual gifts. And so we're to understand this teaching about spiritual gifts within the context of unity in the body of Christ. Let me show you this from Scripture in three places. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. Paul says, But God has so composed the body... 
giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This, the, 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 the largest portion of Scripture that is devoted to spiritual gifts is more predominantly devoted to unity within the body of Christ and serving one another within the body of Christ. That's, that, that's no coincidence. Paul says in Ephesians 4, we mentioned verse 11. Let me read on to verses, uh, through verses 11 and through 13. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. I believe, again, those are, those are offices, but also to a certain degree, they're, they're spiritual giftings. Why did he give them? Verse 12, To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who are the saints? It's the church. It's the body of Christ. Why did he do that? To equip the saints for the work of ministry? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The focus in talking about these giftings is the building up of the body, the edification of the saints. Peter, the Apostle Peter jumps into this as well in, in where he talks about spiritual gifts. And he says in verses uh, 10 and 11 of chapter 4, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's good stewards of God's, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. So, so both Paul and Peter both tell us that the venue for the exercising of our spiritual gifts is the body of Christ, the church. This is the venue for their exercise. And the purpose for their use is the building up of the body, the edification of the saints, the mutual encouragement of one another, the maturing of our faith so that God may be glorified. So much more important than what our spiritual gift is using it, employing it for the body, building up of the body of Christ for the glory of God. So if you want to know what your spiritual gift is, let me give you a four-step thing. This is not going to be a spiritual gift thing. This is just, just how, how to know how God has gifted you. And I've touched on this, but I would start, first of all, read Scripture. Read those passages of Scripture. Read Romans 12, 6 through 8 that we just dealt with this morning. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the whole chapter. Read Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 11. All of this will discuss those four, those, uh, in those three passages, you'll find those 20 spiritual gifts that we, that we described earlier. Then, after reading those Scriptures, do a word study like we talked about. Do a word study on what those biblical words mean. Years ago, for this very purpose, I put together a very, very simple uh, list of definitions of the biblical words. Um, I've, I've emailed that to the base group leaders, and I've put it on our Facebook group this morning, so you can download that and use that as a very simple tool to help guide you and understand what those words mean. What does is, what is the biblical word for teaching mean? What does it mean when it talks about mercy? What does it mean when it talks about the gift of helping? What does that word actually mean? And then, after your study, then simply ask, third step, which ones of these sound like you? Which ones of these gifts sound like things that maybe God has supernaturally gifted you with? 
Um, ask yourself, based on my understanding of teaching, um, do I or do I not? Does it sound like I have that gift? A, a great thing to do here in asking whether or not you have this gift is to ask those with whom God has placed you in community, do you think I have this gifting? I would encourage you to do that in your base groups this week when you meet. I, I don't know what my gifting is, but I think it might be this. Do y'all see this in me? And just ask whether or not that is the case. And then fourthly, most importantly, put them in use. For those gifts that you think you might have, that maybe God has given you, don't look for a spiritual gift inventory to, pr- to provide confirmation of that. Instead, look for a way in which you might use it within the body of Christ. Look for a way in which you might use it within your base group, within the community that God has placed you in. The, the idea here is to put it into practice and let your practice of that gift be part of that filter for understanding whether or not this is a gifting that God has given to you. Well, what's the determining factor there? Well, when God's people are rightly using, employing their spiritual gift in the power of the Holy Spirit, yielded to his empowering through them, three things will happen. Number one, God will be glorified. And so you can ask yourself, as you're, as you're using this, this, this gift, this gift of teaching or this gift of mercy or this gift of helps or administration or whatever it is, as you're trying to use it, do you sense that God is glorified in that? That's one. Another thing that will happen is that you will be satisfied. You'll have a, an intense experience of joy that God is using you in a powerful way through the manifestation of the Spirit that he has given to you. So when you use that gift, do you sense joy? Is there deep satisfaction in you that, that God is using you in a meaningful way? And then thirdly, there will be spiritual fruit. Now, in determining spiritual fruit, this is, this is critical, we need to make sure that we're not focusing on the quantitative aspect of spiritual fruit, but the qualitative aspect of spiritual fruit is what is most important. But whatever your spiritual gift, it was given to you for a purpose. It was given to you for a single purpose, to be put to use in the body of Christ for the building up of the church so that God might be glorified. When Paul was exhorting young Timothy to use the gift that God had given to him, he said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, he said, Do not neglect the gift that God has given to you, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Don't neglect that gift. And then in his second letter to Timothy, Paul said this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I think those are two really good application points to walk away from in our study of spiritual gifts. Number one, don't neglect it. Whatever it is that God has gifted you in, don't neglect that. But instead, fan it into flame. Church, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Because he's given it to you for the building up of the body of Christ, the edification of the saints, the maturing of our faith as a church, so that he might be glorified in this body. Let's pray.